Hello, and welcome back to Lots of Planets Have a North, a Northern Doctor Who podcast. I'm Kieran. I'm Bethan. I'm Jacob. And today we are looking at season 11. So we've gone in our like two classic series episodes so far, we've gone from the start of John Pertwee's run to, I know you, you're a big fan of John Pertwee's run, Jacob. I am. Um, <laughs> very good run. Um, to uh, the end of his, his time on the program. And looking over season 11, there's something interesting going on that like, you know, people often say that like season 18, Tom Baker's last season has this kind of funereal air to it. More deliberately in that instance, I think. And where it's all kind of leading up to Logopolis, leading up to like the end of this great iconic presence. I think season 11 actually has something kind of similar, but it's more, it doesn't seem to be as, um, as deliberate, shall we say. Because if you, if you kind of look at the personnel involved throughout Pertwee's run, um, Katie Manning has left as of the end of season 10. Roger Delgado actually passes away, I think, during the filming of The Time Warrior. Terrence Dix and Barry Letts are both kind of on their way out. They actually spend a lot of season 11 distracted by their new series Moonbase 3 and Pertwee is kind of looking around for his way out as well and so what you have is a bunch of people who have kind of been doing the same thing for a few years now with the best will in the world kind of coming to the end of that even if you look at the writers on this season the only writer who didn't write for the show in the 60s is Robert Sloman everyone else has been writing since at least Tretton, in Terry Nation's case, since the second, or depending on how you count, the third story of the entire series. It's very much people who have been around, not if not the whole time, at least for a good chunk of time. Um, Terrence Dix is in his sixth year as script editor. In the, Over the course of this season, he kind of slowly hands over to Robert Holmes. So we'll, I think we'll be talking about both of them probably in quite a bit of detail as we go on. It's also, speaking of the writers, it's the last story for three of them, three of the five. Only Holmes and Nation will write anything for Doctor Who after, well, anything for the, the series. I think Hulk does some, uh, Malcolm Hulk does some novelizations. Doctor, let's get a few things straight, shall we? Yeah. There is one obvious kind of newcomer, though, uh, for this season, um, which is Liz Slayton as Sarah Jane Smith popularly regarded as like the great companion of the the classic series at least i'm not to preempt our discussion of companions in a future episode by too much but like how do we feel how do we feel about sarah jane in this season actually specifically in this season i feel like they're slightly trying to have their cake and eat it in that they've clearly introduced her as this kind of like women's lib figure like she's Mm. In a, I guess, still male-dominated profession, journalism. Mm, yeah. Um, absolutely. but for all that she like has some nice bits when she talks about like women's limb and so on, she does spend a lot of the series getting captured and not doing like a tremendous amount. Mo- this mm. is more of a problem in some episodes than others, I have to say. There's not a lot of female characters in this season. There aren't. I mean, speaking of the script editors. It's kind of something that is somewhat true of Terence Dix's tenure and very true of Robert Holmes's. There's like whole episodes with no female supporting characters at all in his in his time as script editor. 
And also in her first episode, first story rather, The Time Warrior, she is introduced as having this kind of like feminist approach to things, but it's also an episode in which she is quite firmly reminded things were worse in medieval times. Yeah, that's true. Which like, yeah, sure. (laughs) But um, it's in the most sort of vague idea of the medieval age as well, but... Yeah, I think we'll talk about yeah. that. So I, I do like like Liz Sladen's portrayal of the of the character, but I think it's a bit frustrating how they kind of seem to want to have her so that they have this character that's got a more sort of feminist attitude, but then they also don't really want to follow that through into having her do too much or mm. showing her ideas to have too much credence. Um, that's kind of my take on her in this se- in this season, anyway. There's a yeah. There's a couple of times. There's and it happens in the the Time Warrior and Monster of Peladon. I think those are the only two instances where she kind of makes a point of giving like a strange, weirdly kind of almost in anachronistic speech about women's lib, which she tells us because she tells us that she is telling us about women's lib to like. To the Queen of Peladon, and I think she does it to the like, the servants working in the kitchen in the Time Warrior as well. And it's, I mean, it's kind of feminism as imagined by middle-aged men. I think it's <laughs> fair to say in the nineteen seventies, in that it's like there's not a whole lot of substance to it other than like, girls can do things too, which is pretty much what everything she says kind of amounts to. But not too many things. No, and <laughs> and as you say, it's more kind of an attitude that she espouses rather than that the series itself seems to espouse. Yeah, and it's interesting that like um, it seems to have the speech seems to have some effect on the Queen of Peladon, mm. who is in charge of Peladon, but it doesn't seem to have any effect on the poor rustic serving wench mm. who is too, I guess poor and uneducated to know better it's not a great like class yeah mm. and that's a problem that runs throughout Thing. the whole Barry Letts and Terence Dix era I think yeah yeah as well as well and I think I think the issue we're kind of talking about about like the way in which again like, I like Sarah Jane as well but yeah the way in which the character is I guess in Barry Letts and Terence Dix's eyes meant to be progressive and yet like you say is always getting locked up or whatever uh, and I think that's symptomatic of the fact that these are the two producers who got rid of an earlier progressive companion in the yes, first series as yes. we talked about because she wasn't being tied up and asking questions and things like that mm. so I think there's a kind of they kind of tried to do something progressive then took a step backwards and now they're they're taking a baby step forwards, but it's all very unsubtle and not very well executed. Yeah, I mean, I think this is... It's interesting that it would be Holmes writing her first story mm. as well, given that, as I've said, Holmes has a weird record with um, having women in his stories at all. He's also script editor um, a few seasons later when Leela is introduced, mm. who I think has some similar problems in that, like... Leela has all kinds of weird, problematic ideas wrapped up in the whole idea of her, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point. Um, but there again, there seems to be an attempt to kind of do a companion a bit differently who can kind of 
will play a very different role to uh, how the perception is companions have been in the past. Even like, um, I think Liz Sladen kind of like Katie Manning, although quite differently, um, really rises to more than she's given, as it were. Mm. In the same way that Joe Grant on paper is kind of, seems like a character that would be kind of, not have a huge amount of impact, to be honest. Katie Manning kind of brings a real verve to her that sort of subverts that, and uh, to a certain extent subverts the, what is the ham-fisted bun vendor way she's written. I think Liz Layden, um likewise kind of elevates the character a bit and elevates the like weirdly patronizing way that she's quite often written especially in this season it gets a bit better under Holmes, but not like i mean we'll get to that at some point she does scream a lot she does yeah she that's actually something that stops after this season um, oh good to a greater or lesser extent she's not a particularly screamy companion she kind of ends up especially in death to the daleks actually which is interesting for reasons i'll talk about when we get to death to the daleks but i think it's um a lot of the way that story is written is kind of a weird throwback in many ways it's kind of weird because i think that when particularly when she gets captured which happens quite a few times yes Per episode, per story, mm. maybe even per episode for some of them. In, in Monster of Peladon, <laughs> about three times per episode, um, yeah. And I feel, I feel like there's been a, there was a mistake with the way it was directed, or they should have realised. So I think they have her struggle a lot to try and make her look plucky. Yeah. But actually, if you show someone struggling a lot but really ineffectually, it just makes them look a bit sort of wim- wimpy, and I yeah, feel like. True. Between that and the fact that she screams a lot, it like is a bit. It's a little bit frustrating yeah, yeah. to watch the parts of the episodes that are just her doing her own thing, even yeah. though Liz Sladen's performance is otherwise very good, and the stuff that she has, where it's her and other characters, like other regular characters, tends to be quite enjoyable. I think it's just when she's interacting with the villains, they seem to like not know how to have her be showing strength in that mm. even though I assume the fact that she struggles so much is that they want it to seem like she's doing something but it just looks like she's trying a lot for nothing and I don't know yeah. it's just a, a weird a slightly weird acting slash directing choice <laughs> yeah no I, I get what you mean I think yeah it's a it's a funny thing about this season actually is on paper again they get kind of seem to give her quite a bit to do in that, like, she kind, she quite often gets her own sort of subplots within episodes where she's, like, off doing her own thing while the Doctor is doing something else. But I think Invasion of the Dinosaurs is a good uh, example here because a lot of her subplot involves her being kidnapped and on, like, a, the fake colony ship. So, like, while she gets quite a bit to do and she actually gets some really nice moments within that subplot, I think, it's also her being almost literally locked away from the plot for several episodes time so there's that as well she doesn't she very rarely really gets to drive a plot there is another woman on that um spaceship there is Mm. so that's number two for that episode so i think we can all be glad of that (laughs) yeah i think um 
offhand, I think Planet of the Spiders is the only story that doesn't have any other women. Uh, the spiders oh, no. are all... Sorry, it does It does have other women. It there's has someone the... on the planet, isn't there? Yeah, there's a couple of um, female villages. There's mother and <laughs> sister and daughter of mother, but there's also mm. uh, a whole bunch of spiders. <laughs> there are, yeah. <laughs> Who are uh, all girls. Yeah. One, one of them voiced by Roger Delgado's widow, and another mm. voiced by um, Isan Churchman, who was Alpha Centauri in the previous story. Um, we'll talk about Alpha Centauri, I think. Um, I've got some things to say about them. Um, shall we move on to the actual episodes then? Yeah, unless you've got unless we've got anything like thematic to say about the series, or would you rather build up? To I'm your gonna points? I'm gonna go through because the episodes are in a convenient order where it works really nicely. What <laughs> right. Do, nice. So. Nice. Yeah. Well, we'll go episodes then. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Let's start with the Time Warrior. Warrior. A warrior from the stars. You got to challenge me, Sky Warrior. Fight your life, Captain! What do we think of this one generally? Uh, Bethan, do you want to go first? Sure. I enjoyed watching it a lot, although from what I'm going to say about it, it might sound like I didn't enjoy it, but mm. I really did. And I think it's very funny. And I like the introduction of the. Centauran links mm. in the story. It's uh, it's historically quite vague. Like, <laughs> I <laughs> don't think there's anything you could pin it down to a specific section of the uh, medieval period. However, in a way, I kind of like that. I'd rather they did that than, than, than say, than pretend it's a specific era, but then actually just do the sort of pop cultural version of that history. Like in yes. The Witch <laughs> where they like, where they do sort of set it around around the time of the actual Pendle witch trials, but they have this completely separate version of history where it's just how we imagine witch trials being and not how they actually were. Mm. So I'd rather, in a way, have something like this where it's... There's no attempt to, like, put it to any historical character, really, but they're just, ha- they're just kind of running with the idea of doing a medieval-ish setting and having fun with it. I think there's something telling about the fact that Sarah takes it for a theme park for, like, quite some time. Mm. I think, like, because um, the, the background to this is that uh, Holmes really didn't want to write a historical. but got <laughs> kind of saddled with it. So he ended up writing barely a historical. People uh, credit him with inventing the pseudo-historical, where there's, like, a sci-fi element in a historical story. Mm. Whether or not that's actually the case is I kind mean, of debatable. The Time Meddler is technically the first yeah. historical. Yeah. You could also say the War Games, but I think that's different because that's not an alien or like something like an alien coming into a historical period. It's like historical periods almost like being taken, which is a different thing. But, yeah, uh, I think, yeah, the, the War Games is doing something quite different. But um, also, I think both Time Meddler and the War Games are kind of like microcosms of the show mm. itself as well in mm. the same way that something like Carnival of Monsters is. Yeah. Um, but it, yeah, that's a completely separate issue. And Jacob then, what's your what's your take? Yeah, I I again like I quite enjoy watching it. I mean, I'm a fan of the Santarans, so I'm sort of biased. But uh yeah, I think um Kevin Lindsay's performance as the Santaran is like very good. Mm. Um I think he kind of brings it to life the costume is is well done for the time. Mm. I quite like the period setting again. It's very vague, but it's something that the BBC always does very well. Yeah, and I think I think Lynx's kind of 
quite nicely incorporated into the historical period. Mm. Um, you know, it's kind of quite appropriate to have a kind of like warrior alien come into into that kind of situation. There's, yeah, there's a kind of like mirroring of like Iron Grand, the Robber Baron, mm. and Lynx, who is doing pretty much the same thing on a cosmic scale. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, overall, I think it's I think it's good. Um, I mean, I think as we've kind of touched upon, I, I guess there's an issue with kind of the treatment of Sarah Jane and this mm. kind of contradictory attempt to be progressive, but at the same time, there's also a kind of a kind of nastiness there in the kind of... I mean, I know Elizabeth Sandler has talked about this, mm. so yeah. I'll just steal from that blog again. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> I feel like one of the, the secret aims of this podcast is to get Elizabeth Sandford to notice us. She is, in many ways, our senpai. <laughs> Um, anyway um, yeah I mean I I agree entirely with both of you um, I I like this one quite a bit it's not like I'd never class it as a favourite mm-hmm. I don't think it's like it's it's fun it's kind of maybe a an above average Pertwee story should we say mm. but there's nothing in it that really kind of leaps out and, and grabs me as like oh yeah this is fantastic this is a fantastic idea I think there are um, there are, <laughs> um, Bethan's disturbed of my phrasing. I think no, no. I was just uh, bewildered that the bit where um, they reveal Lynx's face and he sort of weirdly sticks his tongue out a couple of times. I'm disappointed that doesn't seem to have made it into your like top ten Doctor Who moments of all time. From what no, you were saying, I mean, we have been imitating it a lot in the like <laughs> couple of months since we watched the story. It's extremely funny, and I'm not sure why they did it. I think maybe maybe he's got some kind of like lizard esque traits. Maybe that's what he was going Could for. Could be. Yeah. Maybe I'd... they wanted to show off the fact that the mouth of the like prosthetic yeah, could yeah. open. But I enjoyed it. It I, was amusing. I think it's meant to be just like a weird alien thing, to be honest. That's what, what I kind of took from it. Cool, yeah. cool. Um, yeah, it is certainly... Um, memorable. Yes. And I mean, the other memorable thing, which I kind of wanted to get on to, the other memorable villainous turn, I should say, is Iron Gron. Chicken-hearted names! <laughs> yes, exactly that. Who is one of the most quotable villains in Doctor Who history. And is... It's wonderful because both uh, Holmes and the actor David Dacre seem to be just, like, absolutely going for it. <laughs> it's Again, it's part of the weird kind of vague, the kind of almost pantomime unreality of this story. That this kind of threatening figure, this robber baron who is has moved in and is, like, menacing the local nobility of Wessex... <laughs> Which is the, about as, as specific specific as we ever get. Wessex is like this just weird figure who is like it's not that he's not threatening because he kind of he he is shown to be like a formidable fighter in his own right and to have all this kind of hard power in terms of his heavily armed men who are even more heavily armed once Lynx joins them. But he's so ludicrous uh, in all of his phrasing and in like. The way he says it all, that he's also just endlessly entertaining on top of it. You kind of like, he's one of those villains that you're sorry to see go. He reminds me of, um, I can't remember his name, but the villain from uh, The Androids of Tara, 
who has a similar thing mm. where he's just like almost just not threatening at all or when he is threatening you're just enjoying it so much that it's kind of fine um i think delgado has this sometimes as well and the other thing as well is that like he gets a weird amount of time like the episode begins with him the story sorry begins with him and mm. um, there's like it begins with him and his his lads kind of feasting together and then links arrives but there's like i think there's a good five minutes of pretty much non-stop iron Gron action before we even get to the Doctor. So, like, I can't help but think that Holmes was almost disappointed at having to make this a Doctor Who story. He wants to just write the adventures of Iron Gron, which is a spin-off that I would be very happy to see. Big fan- big finish have probably got it in the works if they haven't I'm, I would, I'm a, I would be amazed if it doesn't exist. <laughs> I don't know if um, David Dacre is still with us, but if he is, then presumably Nick Briggs is on the phone to him right now. I suppose I could have been wrong. It's a generous admission, especially coming from one of the fair sex. Or he could just be changing sides to save his own skin. With the whole gender issue, there's a couple of weird things, which is when Lynx first sees Sarah Jane, he's like bewildered Hmm. because he's apparently not seen a woman before, even though there are women around the castle because they've seen them. So either maybe he hasn't seen those women or he doesn't recognise them as women because they're so slovenly and unkempt or mm. whatever. Also, none of the scientists that he's kidnapped are women. Yes. But then also, I'm not sure, based on what gender presentation seems to be like elsewhere in this vague medievalish world, that they would necessarily immediately know that Sarah Jane was a woman. Mm. Because her hair is cut in like a bob, which is similar to the haircuts that the male characters have. She's dressed in quite, uh, I guess, deliberately androgynous fashion yeah. in a sort of like probably trying to dress to like assert herself in the workplace is presumably what the character's motivations would be. Mm. So it's kind of weird that both the, all of the men and the Sontaran are like, here is a, here is a different uh, woman. We've n- never seen women around here that look like this mm. or whatever or something i just found it a bit mm. there's a weird attitude towards the female characters in the story yeah i mean it is true and like and uh, like if you were being very charitable you might say oh well lynx just hasn't noticed the servants because like they wouldn't come to his attention but and he's like locked away in his room but i still think it would be a, it's a bit of a stretch mm-hmm. yeah i mean what, what you say about her kind of not appearing particularly feminine in this vague medieval world mm. at least and yeah that's that's something that hadn't occurred to me before but like you're right uh, i can't remember what exactly link says about her he says something like the thorax looks different well, it's, yeah. it's yeah, more slender he says he, he says that um like it's the point where he realizes that humans have a primary and secondary reproductive system yes. because obviously like they're all clones yeah the Sontarans, and you want more information on this? I'm not going there. Get the DVD of the Sontaran experiment and watch the interviews because Robert Holmes passed on some dreadful information to the writers of that program about the private lives of Sontarans. Oh, it's not good. Okay. Yeah, it's not good. But I want to know now. I'm not saying. Okay. <laughs> Watch okay. the DVD. I'll, I'll, I'll look it up in my own time. Yeah. I can't bring myself to do it. So it feels weirdly slightly punishing of Sarah Jane in a way because mm. it's a bit like, 
oh, you might dress in this more masculine way in the 1970s to try and show that you're as good as everyone else, but everyone here knows, including the Centauran, that you're different and that you're not like that. And I know that that's not the intention of it, but it just feels a bit kind of like, you can't fool us, girl. If you've lost one of your dumb wayface ninny's links, then look for him yourself. My men are at rest. And we march on Sir Edward within the hour. I insist upon a search, I am grown. The doctor is of great value to me. And while he is at large, he could be dangerous. The doctor? Bother me now, little toad, and you will feel an axe in your skull. Master, I heard somebody called doctor while we were at that fellow's heels. Is this doctor a long shank rascal with a mighty nose? That is how he would appear in human eyes. Then he is no longer here. Should we talk about Blood Axe? Oh, Blood Axe, And what a yeah. great name Blood Axe is, even though it's a Viking name. Yeah, yeah, it's... Which, again, causes some confusion as to when and where we are. But also, I mean, what really causes the confusion as to where we are is his accent. <laughs> which is incredible. It, like, roves the entire country in the space of a single sentence. Like, he seems to be from, um, sort of, Northumbria one moment, and then the West Country the next... <laughs> he was I think he was verging on Welsh a couple of times. Yeah, but, yeah. Um I'm not sure he ever quite hit it or no. anywhere. He um he sort of hovers above the entirety of well he's never Scottish, so the entirety of England and Wales at mm, least. Mm-hmm. And like sort of touches down somewhere every now and then and then like flits away to the other side of the country entirely. I I mean I have a real fondness for weird accents. In, uh, in everything, but particularly in Doctor Who. So this is like, this is a train that I'm always happy to, to ride on. Mm. It's like they told him to do a regional accent, so he just picked all the He regions. did every regional accent, yeah. <laughs> well, and none of them. <laughs> yes. I want to know how he speaks just naturally, that, that actor. That's mm. his real accent. Oh, okay. That makes sense. He's, he's from all over. Oh, right. <laughs> I, I bet he's act real accents like RP or something, and he just doesn't know what other. I suspect sound like. so. To be perfectly honest, yeah. What was I? Listening? I was listening to. I think it was the Flight Through Entirety podcast uh, recently, where they were referring to Iron Gron and Blood Axe as one of the most moving couples in Doctor Who history, <laughs> which I quite liked. <laughs> Blood Axe does kind of keep going on about how wonderful Iron Gron is, so maybe it's it's sadder than we ever thought. Maybe it's unrequited. I think Iron has a thing for links, though. That's true, actually. There's some kind of strange love triangle going yeah, on. Yeah, but it's some kind of... Um, he's not sure how to feel about it, because on the one hand, he, he's, he claims he finds links physically repellent, mm. but on the other hand, I think he's kind of in awe, you know? He does keep calling him a toad, even though he doesn't really look like a toad in any way. I feel like maybe maybe people in medieval times were just really hazy about what a toad looked like. <laughs> Potentially, yeah. A frogger. A frogger, yes. Um, as it is called on the in-development Middle English Wikipedia. Um, there should be a page on Sontarans. Oh, yes. A Sontaran is a greater nicht. <laughs> Actually, I wish that's what Blue Axe's voice had been. Just like yeah. the weird, yeah. the weird accent that you try and do when you want to sound like you know how to say Middle English yes. words, but you don't. <laughs> I wish that's what everyone in the story sounded like. Mm. Yeah. This is getting back to my uh, 
the Silurians should have spoken in Anglo-Saxon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, actually. Um, oh, yeah, actually. There's an interesting moment around the... Again, actually, around the beginning, when Lynx first arrives, and he, like, he comes out of the ship and plants his weird flag that, like, is basically a stick that then sprouts two little flags. Mm. And then to, says, like, I claim this planet and its moons and satellites in the name of the Santaran Empire, whatever it is. There's something going on there. I think Terence Dix suggested that it's like Holmes's critique of American imperialism specifically. Mm. But like, I feel like a mid 20th century English writer is probably not primarily thinking of American imperialism. Yeah, yeah. Being slightly generous to Holmes in some ways. Because as, as, as we know, and as we will discover when we come to future stories... Holmes has some problematic tendencies uh, with regard to race in particular. Yeah, I mean, I think they call Lynx a Saracen, don't they? Oh, they do, yeah. So that's just a, a thing that happens, I guess. Yeah. I think the the thing with Lynx, I don't so much see the American imperialism thing, like mm. you were saying. Um, well, like Terence Dix was saying. <laughs> oh no, no, sorry, I meant I don't see it as you were saying. You also don't. See yeah, it. I think there is political element to Links as a character, um, which is the Doctor's description of Links and Sontarans in general as nasty, brutish, and sure. Yes, yes, the Hobbesian thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is yeah similar to Hobbes' description of man's state of nature as a state of war. In which life would be solitary, poor, nasty, bruises and short. And I'm going to come back to this Ooh. numerous times throughout this podcast. But, yeah, so, I mean, the idea of the social contract is a theme that runs throughout this entire series, or this season. And it's also kind of bound up in what's happening politically at the time. Mm, uh, yes, yes, And I the political surroundings. So, yeah, I mean, like, Hobbes's kind of thing is basically that he argues that, the, that you need the leadership of a strong ruler, so preferably a monarchical ruler, mm. to prevent this kind of, like, state of war, which he sees as, like, the natural state of man, uh, well, humans. And I think that that kind of plays throughout this episode in the way in which, you know, the king is supposed to be away. Yes. Um, yes. Edward, is, it's Edward, isn't it, I think? The, ca- the character in the cattle. Oh, yes. Um, I think yeah, so. it is Edward. He's he's seen as quite weak and kind of can't keep control. Yeah. And so, yeah, again, it's... Lynx kind of plays into that and is also, I think, a comment upon that. Hmm. But, yeah, basically, I think throughout this series, there's a focus on that idea of the social contract. And there's also, as part of that, a very problematic view of kind of human progress and a liberal narrative of mm. progress so if you think about you know kind of the way in which the doctor talks about human beings need to be allowed to develop at their own pace mm. and that he, he that there's constant references in this episode to barbarism versus civilization when he goes to edward's castle he talks about it's good to be amongst civilized people yes yes you know and again there's that as run throughout the whole barry let's terence dicks era there's that quite dodgy class commentary in mm. which you know the, the, these uh, poorer people are, are barbaric in some way which is also a problematic term in and of itself but yeah and I think he almost 
there's an odd thing here where like the doctor almost becomes like a, a guardian of liberal progress in terms of he's attempting to stop links interfering uh, in the timeline because then uh, humans won't progress at their own speed. Um, it's the prime directive. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what I was yeah. just thinking, yeah. yeah. But, it, I mean, it's a, it's, I guess it's a, something that the programme naturally... A problem that the programme naturally runs into because that is yeah. something that comes up again and again and again is, yeah. is the, the Doctor's kind of attempts to make history run along the mm. correct lines, whatever mm. that actually means. But, yeah, and I, I think... I will come back to this stuff later on, but I think all this stuff to do with the social contract and liberal narratives of progress are going to reoccur mm. throughout the episodes. Yeah. I can... And it will become more clear what the contemporary relevance of that is anyway. It's, um, it's kind of related in a way to the thing with Sarah Jane trying mm. to preach women's liberation to the yeah. servants where there's maybe this subtext behind it of these people are not yet ready for what you are bringing from the future. Mm. You can't, women can only have equality after a certain amount of time and then it's okay, kind of. Yeah, no, I think um, the Prime Directive is is apposite there because I think this, probably more than any other period of Doctor Who, is kind of slightly in the shadow of Star Trek, the original uh, series of Star Trek, and of that kind of, that idea in Star Trek, of the kind of, the liberal idea of the progress of history towards, in the, the case of Star Trek, towards utopia, which I think is far less the case in Doctor Who, actually, from all of the, the futures that we see for humanity throughout the series, in, even the one that involves a utopia. Uh, maybe that one more than any other, in fact. What strikes me, actually, is you mention um, the Doctor as a kind of, as a guardian of that idea. He refers in the course of the story, uh, quite disparagingly, to the Time Lords as galactic ticket inspectors. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like it's, uh, you know, famously, it's the first time Gallifrey is named on screen. So the the Time Lords have a kind of shadowy presence there. And I mean that I think brings to mind something that, again, to use the the contractually obligated name check, Elizabeth Sandifer talks a lot about this <laughs> about the uh, the notion of. Uh, that we get up until at least the Deadly Assassin, really, of the Time Lords as guardians of, like, the arc of history. Mm. Uh, and that their kind of, their role is to to ensure that this progress kind of continues. And that, like, what's what's dangerous for them about particularly the Troughton Doctor, some, some of the other incarnations as well, is that the Doctor kind of pops up all over the place and gets involved and, like, disrupts things in one way or another. And so I think if you look at it in the kind of the arc of the whole show, there's an argument you made that this is the third Doctor having, like, having come to the end of his exile and having kind of subsumed that lesson. Mm. Even though he, he, he makes that kind of disparaging comment, he still kind of somewhat agrees with their um, yeah. their overall position in a way that, like past and future doctors won't mm. uh, and very directly haven't and won't so i think this is this is almost like the midpoint in that way between the war games and i suppose something like the deadly assassin if not necessarily that story mm. anything else in particular about the time warrior i don't think so i mean just maybe to restate that it is fun and it's mm. definitely the best paced yeah. of all oh, the God, yeah. stories we're going to talk about being the four episode story yeah yeah, yeah 
think. Yeah, I, I do just have one final point. That was kind of the point that I wanted to end on. Mm. Uh, which is, I've been thinking about this story and about Santaran stories more generally. And I think it's interesting that if you look at the kind of the Santaran stories that are generally agreed to work best as against the ones that are generally seen in, shall we say, less positive light. So, for instance, there's this story, there's the Santaran experiment, there's like various stories in the new series with Strax. All of those stories feature one Santaran. Whereas, on the other hand, you've got the Invasion of Time, you've got the Two Doctors, just about, uh, you've got like the Santaran experiment and Poison Sky two-parter, mm-hmm. which are all like, well, in the Two Doctors, it's, only, it's still only two Santarans. But it's still, in all of those, it's like a group of Santarans. And so I, th- I think there's something weird in the fact that, like, it almost seems like, despite the fact that Centaurans are presented as, as this clone race, as this uh, this warlike race who, like, to some extent think alike and, like, exist and operate en masse, it seems like stories with one Centauran actually work better, generally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Strax is a bit of an outlier in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. And Strax is, like kind of polarizing as well some people really Mm. don't like him some people quite like him (laughs) but then none of the stories are really about Strax in the same way that they're about these Mm. the Centaurans in other instances are they so in that sense it's kind of makes sense that he wouldn't have his reception wouldn't follow the same rules yeah as other ones seem to but yeah, I guess maybe because they are all the same. If you have more of them, it doesn't necessarily mean yeah. there's more of an impact. Yeah, yeah. But then... I think it's like the strength of the central performance, isn't it? Yeah. You know, mm. um, like if you have a good performance from just one villain, that can be enough. Because mm. I guess with like, so with Daleks and Cybermen, they're mm. also supposed to be the same slash similar to each other. Yeah. But I guess it's more, it's it's less reliant on the performance of the actor just because you don't get the facial expressions with the Cybermen or the Daleks Mm. Mm. so maybe Suntarans because they have that potential to be enhanced by having like a strong central performance maybe that's why they work better alone that's yeah I think that's a good point I mean the other thing is that in most of the instances that I just mentioned of there being multiple Suntarans in actually all of those stories they're not they might be the primary villains, but they're never the only villains. Because in Invasion of Time, there's the, like, other invasion that also happens by the group of people that I can't remember what they're called. Vardens? Vardens, yeah. yeah. And you began with a V. I've only watched the episode once, I think, because <laughs> I think I've seen it since. <laughs> uh, yeah. In The Two Doctors, there's the Androgums are kind of the, the centre of the episode, and uh, the Centaurans are really just kind of a sideshow. Even in Centauran Stratagem, even though it's named after them, it's really the the human tech genius guy who presumably has a name that I can't remember. He's almost more the focus of the episode. And the Centaurans are just kind of almost like a force that is kind of happening. like Almost like a force of nature that is kind of impacting the plot, but not necessarily particularly individualized. So yeah, I think there's, there's something going on there. Mm. For sure. Shall we move on then? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. To the dinosaurs. <laughs> Where are we going? I told you to New Earth. Sorry, I seem to have forgotten. A small planet, very much like the Earth we've left behind, but at an earlier stage of development. Still pure, undefiled by the evil of man's technology. 
air that is still clean to breathe. Simple pastoral people, innocent and unspoiled. It'll be our task to guide them, to see that the evil developed on Earth will not be repeated. Our task? Lots of excitement for dinosaurs, isn't there? Yeah. Well, I'm actually going to start on this one because I'm kind of, to some extent, a defender of this story. I'm immediately hedging, but um, because, like, it's not great. It's not an all-time classic. Um, It's way too long, and even by Pertwee six-parters, ludicrously padded. There's obviously, there's the giant chase in episode five. Like, most of the, the back half of this story is kind of attempts to keep the Doctor away from the plot for as long as possible. And by having him, like, be pursued by unit and... There's the bit in episode four where he gets into their base, but then they kind of shut all the doors, so he just kind of has to turn around and walk out again. Um, Which seems ludicrous when I put it like that, because it is. And, like, infamously, there's the the dinosaur puppets that, like... I actually don't think are that bad. I think particularly the close-ups on them are okay. Uh, It's more the wide shots where they don't quite move properly. I think their problem is more that they're overused. Four of the five cliffhangers for this story are a dinosaur appears. Good grief. <laughs> and so the story leans kind of too heavily. It's understandable why it does, because, like, dinosaurs. It's a good thing to lean on. I think it was literally Barry Lett's reasoning from what I can gather. <laughs> it doesn't particularly <laughs> surprise me, because... Yeah, when I don't get the sense that Malcolm Hulk is actually that interested in the dinosaurs. He has lots of other things that he's doing, which we will talk about. But yeah, I I think it's as a kind of, almost to some extent, the last unit story of the Pertwee era. Because they only really cameo in uh, Planet of the Spiders. I think it's a decent enough send-off. I think I like quite a lot of the plot elements. Uh, I actually, I quite like the kind of the Operation Golden Age thing as an idea. I think there's interesting things going on there. I don't know how well they're realised, but um, there's some fun stuff going on. I like the idea of there being like a, a traitor within Unit as well. I Yates think... has an arc. He does, yeah. <laughs> uh, if you can imagine such a thing. This is quite a continuity-heavy season, actually. We'll talk about that a bit more when we get to Planet of the Spiders. But... I don't know if Yates was necessarily ready for an arc. No. But, it, but it's happening. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> he um, he he tries to emote. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Jacob, what do you what do you make of this? Yeah, I, I agree with pretty much everything you said. To be honest, like um, I quite like this story. It's one of those stories which has a very bad reputation. Yeah, um, it really does. Because of because of the dinosaurs thing yeah. mainly. But yeah, I think um, I, I really like the... Similarly to what I said with Ambassadors of Death, actually, I like the whole like kind of subterfuge, like, mm. you know, kind of almost like conspiracy plot line. I think all that works really well. The betrayal stuff with Yates is quite a good idea. <laughs> I mean, even if he can't necessarily pull it off. I really like the, the opening episode in particular. Mm. I, mm. Think, I think that... The whole stuff with the deserted London and the way that's executed. That's great, actually. Really, really well. Um, I think that's kind of like... It's kind of like really reaching the heart of what the Pertwee era should 
mm-hmm. be about. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got you stuff know, to say about that actually. Yeah. Getting the threat down to earth. You know, yeah. In a really interesting, recognisable way. So yeah, overall very positive. The dinosaurs don't look great. It's too long. It's mm. padded. But yeah, overall, I think it's. I think it's still. It's still good. It's still enjoyable. Yeah, the episode one of this story is really, really good, and really good in a kind of quite an unexpected way. I'd completely forgotten. It has a very different tone to the rest of the story. Mm. It's mm. really interesting, and I think yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on um, with the way London is portrayed in this story, which I'll come on to in a bit. Uh, episode one also has the great bit where Liz Layton has clearly never hitchhiked before in her life and does this weird thing where she like she sticks out her thumb because she obviously knows that's something you do and kind of waves her hand up and down wildly <laughs> to fly down a car. It does work for the character of Sarah Jane though. It kind of does actually, yeah. Um, She'd have the confidence to try and hitchhike but not the know-how of yeah. <laughs> what you're supposed to do. <laughs> that's true actually. There's also a bit actually, I meant to mention this earlier but the Doctor loses a fight in episode one. To the guy from vaguely medieval times. Which is something that actually happens a few times in this season. He loses that fight. He loses to Etis ludicrously in uh, Monster of Peladon. He more or less wins against the spider guards in Planet of the Spiders. But then they zap him with force lightning, which is cheating. But there is this interesting thing going on. And I I don't think it's a deliberate like motif or anything. But it's as if kind of there's a... A growing sense of Pertwee and the Third Doctor both kind of getting older and foreshadowing, mm. <laughs> and being less like the the physical prowess that had always been like his touchstone mm. is kind of diminishing. But yeah, that's that's very kind of by the by. Um, Betha, what is your take on the dinos? On oh, the dinos, I love them. Um, I I actually didn't realize how bad the reputation of this story apparently is. Um, mm. I first caught it when it was on the on Twitch. Twitch yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I enjoyed it then and I enjoyed rewatching it for the most part although obviously there are quite large swathes of it that is just padding. Yeah. I don't mind the dinosaurs mm. the way they look is a bit shit but in a way that makes me want to like them even more. <laughs> I find them quite endearing and, you know, you can sort of understand what they're supposed to be doing and that they they work okay for the function that they have in the story, although they are relied on a bit too much, um, particularly for the cliffhangers. I thought it was interesting how um, part of it seems to be about caring about the environment but not too much because it's like these people... These people care about the environment, but so much that they're going to do something ludicrous. But then at the end, there's this bit where they're sort of like, well, it's okay to care about the environment a bit, but this was too far and we've all learned. Well, a good read on this that I came across was Johnny Spandrel uh, on his blog, Random Hoonus. His kind of take is that for Hulk, it's the idea of the kind of it's almost like an authoritarian takeover of environmentalism. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. if, if you look at the, the people involved with the plot, there's like a government minister, and obviously there's an army general, there's a, a unit captain, and then even the people on the ship. The, Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn is there, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like, uh, I think he's a, he's a writer. Um, 
Ruth, I think her name is, the kind of lead woman, is like a, a peer. Mm. The the other guy who who gets lines is like an Olympic athlete. So there's a there's almost like a kind of it's almost like an elite of society. Mm. And obviously that's partly part of the Operation Golden Age thing is like oh we want the best. But that in it there's something almost satirical in that itself. I think there's also actually a colonial element to it because there's there's talk of like oh we're going to land on another planet and. We're going to like. There's something about like guiding a primitive people, mm. and like it's a it's. I know it's a little bit of a, a a stretch from that, but there's there's a potential reading there that it's a critique of the idea that the environmental movement could be potentially colonialist in its attitudes, like in terms of maybe attitudes to the kind of developing world and that kind of thing. I guess I think. To me, a lot of it comes out of the way in which the ecological movement at the time largely was conducting itself and what was influential within the ecological movement and also what was uh, how it was perceived as mm. well. So I think there is an unfortunate association of kind of very early uh, ecological movements kind of in the... Uh, 20th, 21st century with mm. uh, well 20th century really with um, with that kind of exclusivity that you're talking about mm. um, I mean like for a start uh, the British Union of Fascists uh, had some ecological kind of connections uh, ecological thought I mean people who are some, some people in the environmental movement will still try and suggest that people should have yeah. less children yeah um, yeah well and that was a big thing at the time like one of the biggest books out i can't remember the title of it but it was essentially um i can't remember if it's something like the population bomb or something like that basically it was all a lot of the environmental movement at the time was focused on the the fear of overpopulation mm, and obviously yeah. naturally ideas about the fear of overpopulation is inevitably going to encourage people who believe in you know disgusting things like yeah. ethnic cleansing yeah. or whatever Mm. Um, and still, there's there's still like eugenicist undertones when well, yeah when absolutely. people want to when people are suggesting to like curb population growth in yeah. either lower classes of society yeah, yeah. or in yeah like the developing yeah. world yeah it's um it's well worth watching on again on the DVD of Invasion mm. of the Dinosaurs oh yeah there is a documentary in which they kind of look at how it developed in terms of when it was being written, the script, mm. and in particular the kind of ecological influences and what was happening at the time of that. Mm. Um, so that's that's definitely worth a, worth a watch um, if you're interested in that kind of thing. Even the name Operation Golden Age is pretty fascist yeah. when you look at it that yeah, way, yeah. which um, yeah. is not accidental. Yeah, uh, I think at the end um, the Doctor even kind of disparages the idea of a Golden Age mm. openly. I, th- I think it's complicated because whilst I do see all of what I've just said, I can also see the other side of it that you were mentioning about, well, don't get too ecological. Yeah. Because because there is that as well. And it, it does play into a, a kind of narrative that has consistently been used against the ecological community until recently when, you know, all these things have started happening that's made it quite clear that the planet is actually burning. Mm. Um, that, that, you know, people who believe in climate change were mad, mm. uh, essentially. 
you know, and that was literally the term that was frequently used towards mm-hmm. people. So I can I can definitely see how it can play into that narrative, and also there's there's the complexity with the fact that this, whilst it is written by Malcolm Hulk, and Barry Letts as a producer is you know Buddhist and has did have some like ecological kind of concerns as well. It's uh, a kind of a group effort, and Terence mm. Dix, I know for a fact because he said as much, thought that Barry Letts was talking nonsense when he believed in climate change. And Barry Letts is also a liberal as well, and kind of, much as he was kind of very ecologically driven, I also get the feeling that, like, the idea of, well, don't go too far, don't be too radical, yeah. is definitely there as well. So I think mm. it's kind of the combination of all of those people coming together. So I think both takes on it actually make sense Hmm. I mean it's definitely my take on it is influenced by a 21st century perspective in a way that like but I think it's definitely definitely there yeah Yeah. Yeah. just because at the moment it's sort of the single biggest issue that Hmm. the world is facing and so on but I think that it is still worth obviously interrogating problematic strands of Hmm. environmentalism and I still think the idea that people who are already well-off and privileged are the ones who are dictating how we practice environmentalism still yeah, yeah. rings rings true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, definitely. I was looking at examples just earlier today of how like um, people who are famous on social media or like uh, famous celebrities will encourage their fans to use reusable straws and bottles and stuff, but then they will go on private jets for like a YouTube video or something. Yeah. yeah. So I think that there's still a definitely worthwhile thinking about the potential hypocrisies of mm. how we think about people interacting with climate mm. change stuff. Yeah, yeah. That didn't come, <laughs> that trailed off a bit, but like no, the point sense. is there. <laughs> There's a weird self-awareness as well in that I've never been able to find a source on whether or not this is deliberate, but the um, brain behind Operation Golden Age is called Professor Whitaker, And I'm not totally sure if that's a reference to David Whitaker, the first script editor. That's what... Uh, I'm get, have you got this from Tatwood and Lawrence Miles? Because it's in their book, they mention it. Oh, right. Uh, I, I haven't come across that. Yeah, mm-hmm. so they, they talk about... Um, they talk about the fact that yeah, he's called Whitaker, and mm. it sounds like there's possibly some some bad feeling between Malcolm Hulk and um, David Whitaker. You know, the former. Uh, yeah. As you were saying, the former. Well, Hulk, s- um, like, had to do a salvage job on Ambassadors of Death, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, and he wasn't. I know for yeah, he wasn't pleased with that. That was one thing. Yeah, yeah there is a point where they they do talk about they come across each other on Ambassadors of Death. Apparently he sent in, I think, one or two scripts to David Whittaker that were rejected as well, oh, much right. earlier on when Whittaker yeah. was script editor. So yeah, it does seem like maybe there's okay. something going on there. <laughs> but, yeah. Hmm. There's no bus. There's no anything. Well, nothing's moving. No bicycles, no pedestrian, no cars, nothing. Why? Well, perhaps it's Sunday. Great Britain always closes on Sundays. Come on, I think we better walk. There is something that occurred to me in the course of this story that lines up a little bit with 
later stories to s- kind of lines up with Monster of Peladon to some extent. And so is my running theme for this uh, this episode. Um, so a lot of the story revolves around, like we say, the kind of deserted London. Specifically London under martial law, which I think is interesting. Now, 1974. Martial law essentially existed in part of the United Kingdom. Yeah. The British army were on the streets of part of the United Kingdom. Not going to say so much about what they were up to there because that's a whole thing in itself. But the army was on the streets. People saw them every day. People had like their cars searched every day in Northern Ireland. Now, I've seen a few people say that like of all the big sort of contemporary events that were happening in the in the 70s, Northern Ireland, the, the Troubles, is kind of the one that was never explored in Doctor Who. And I think there's some truth to that in that the the series never did like a Northern Ireland episode and thank God for that. Mm. Uh, in the same way that I'm praying they do not try to do a Brexit episode in series 12. But I think it's there. It's there because it's in the zeitgeist. And it, it makes its way in. And the way in which it makes itself felt here is the fact that, again, 1974 is also the year that the, uh, if I've got my, my dates right, that the troubles really start to hit mainland Britain. It's the year where bombs start to go, start going off outside of Northern Ireland itself. There are bombs in Dublin and Monaghan in uh, the Republic of Ireland. And I believe it's also the year that, I don't know the specific incidents, but it's the year that the IRA start bombing uh, mainland Britain as well. So the idea of that a part of the country is, if not quite under martial law, at least has the army on the streets and has done for a few years, and actually, while no one would have known this at the time, will for many years to come, is very much in the air at this point. And while I don't think it's like... It's obviously not what this story is about. It may not have even directly occurred to anyone involved. But there's a resonance there. And I think it certainly... Maybe partly because I um, because we were watching the uh, really good eight-part um, series on the Troubles, which BBC4 were doing a couple of months ago, at the same time that we were watching the story. But I found that resonance very difficult to kind of ignore, at least. Mm. They don't ever explain what happens to the people that get put in like detention centres in the first part. That's of true, it. actually. Yeah. They don't ever yeah, really yeah. like unwrap. Like, I guess it would be too difficult to potentially to show what happens in the aftermath. But they didn't really mm. show what happens after the martial law yeah. phase mm. finishes. I definitely think there is something in what you what you've said. Yeah. Definitely. I also think it's worth noting as well like with this with this whole story really like again this is where i'm coming back to my my theme for the theme for the episode which is the whole social contract thing again because mm-hmm. i mean the essence of what hobbs is saying and what Locke and other thinkers who you know could be classed as social contract theorists will say afterwards mm-hmm. is basically that you relinquish certain freedoms so that you have the protection of the state, so that the state protects property and your life and so on, and prevents this this kind of what Hobbes would see and these other theorists as a fall into anarchy. Mm. And I think that this is a story about that social contract going too far. Mm. 
to the point where you know effectively it effectively breaks and martial law is implemented under under the guise of a social contract mm. but you know in reality is extremely authoritarian do you think that comes out of hulk's far more radical politics sort of intersecting with let's and dix's then possibly yeah uh, and, and and well specific things at the time that were happening so obviously like you mentioned northern ireland um and i also think it's important to note the fact that there was a real possibility at this time of not just martial law not just in northern ireland but also potentially the army and the government and the the idea that the army could potentially overturn the government Mm. now if you ever read something like um john medhurst's that option no longer exists, which is a really good book on the 70s from Zero Books. He talks about how there were apparently discussions within the army and kind of higher up regarding military intervention should a Labour government be elected that was too radical. Bearing in mind this is the point when the Labour Party, obviously we're not quite at, um, I think when this is broadcast... I don't think the election would quite have been happening yet. I'm not sure what month it's broadcasting, but certainly in the right year for the 1974 election, anyway. Hmm. Uh, and hmm. and certainly it was it was clear that we they were heading towards an election. But yeah, Labour in their 1973 program were arguing for an irreversible shift in the balance of wealth and power in favour of working people and their families, architected largely by someone like Tony Benn, who Mm. was extremely radical. And I think a lot of people in the establishment were particularly concerned about that. And so I think this kind of martial law reflects those concerns in the episode. But also, it's a kind of culmination, as Elizabeth Sandifer talks about again, of the tensions in the Pertwee era, Mm. Um, in terms of the nature of the Doctor's character and his kind of attitude towards violence and then him working with the military. And it's another case, again, where he's still working with the military, but we're seeing what happens when military forces go too far. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's almost like, whilst this is showing a breaking of the social contract, there's also strains within the contracts that hold, metatextually hold the programme together as well Mm. in terms of, you know, Unit is essentially what has bound the program together for the past four years, mm. three, four years, uh, and that's now starting to unravel. Yeah, I mean, I think from that point of view, it's interesting that we have significant involvement from the army, mm. the British army, as mm. opposed to just unit. Mm. And that, um, I mean, on the one hand, this manages to keep the kind of the military forces that are kind of will be opposed to the doctor at arm's length from the unit format. Yeah. Uh, because, oh, it's not these nice army people. It's these mm. nasty army people. Mm. But yeah, I think that that is a really interesting point. And the, I think that that tension is something that, like this season in particular, I think, is where the tensions in the Third Doctor format have kind of reached breaking point a little bit mm. Mm. in some ways. And mm. I think that's that's a pretty strong indication of that. Yeah, yeah. There's also the other the other thing to point out with this episode actually is the um, we have once again as we discussed in Pertwee's first season the self interested government officials yes, and scientists yes, which comes back once again and I think 
that bleeds into um, or, or is, is kind of a manifestation of a kind of almost like a crisis in representative democracy that is happening at that point whereby, you know, certain figures, particularly in the Labour left, are arguing for, you know, kind of worker-controlled cooperatives and so on. You have the minor strike going on at the time as well. Mm. Um, we'll come to that. Or several minor strikes <laughs> yes. going on. Um, and so, yeah, that, that, that idea that they're all self-interested kind of undermines the idea that anyone can represent anyone else because mm. they will simply follow their own self-interest. Which is an argument that, unfortunately, is uh, co-opted by reactionary political forces. Mm, mm. But we will get onto that <laughs> at some point. <laughs> well, well, well. Daleks, without the power to kill, how does it feel? Keep away! Keep away! And if I don't, what will you do? Your weapons are totally useless. Affected by the same energy blackout that has stranded us. The power failure is temporary! Superior Dalek technology will overcome interference shortly. Meanwhile, you will obey our orders. You're not in a position to give any orders. No. No, we're all in this together. All equal. So, let's move on to Death to the Daleks, which doesn't actually have an exclamation mark in the title, but always feels to me like it should somehow. Uh, Bethan, do you want to start us off with this I feel like this is where the stories kind of start to get a bit less enjoyable for me, just because there's less that's like that's obviously fun. Um, <laughs> I mean, I do like Daleks, and I'm happy to see them, but um, I think that it's not a super fascinating setup for another planet. The whole thing with the exilons is kind of weird mm. um the the being the the ones that worship the city and the ones that are trying to destroy it but yeah sorry i kind of lost my train of thought a bit there but i just feel like it's um kind of a below average story overall and i also find i do find it quite funny that they have the off-brand enterprise crew <laughs> who are mm. stranded there with the female member who has the kind of thankless task of over explaining what everybody else has said yeah so there's a bit where one guy's like if anyone else comes near they use like a throat cutting gesture and she's like they're sacrificed and there's another bit <laughs> the excellent seem to be nocturnal creatures <laughs> we never see them during the day <laughs> so um that's a bit of a a rubbish job, I guess. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I assume that's her. Um, that's her actual role. Yeah, that's her. That's her. Her team. Her job description. Hmm. Unnecessary explanation. I mean, yeah. she does do a bit more later on with her and Sarah, kind of teaming up to do a bit of subterfuge, maybe. Mm. But um, yeah, I just thought it was quite a funny introduction because that's kind of the first you see of her character. Yeah. Really. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I I agree with you. This is like, it's a story that I kind of have no strong feelings about anyway. I have opinions about it, but like, it's not one that I'd rush out to watch. But it's also not like, I don't hate it. Uh, it's just kind of there. Like, the, the thing people always say about uh, Terry Nation's Dalek stories, especially 
kind of at this point in the program is that he's just run out of ideas and he's just kind of recycling things. I think there's some truth to that. I also, I mean, I'll, I'll explain this as we go on. I think his problem is less that he's not writing the Daleks in new ways. It's that he's not writing anything else in new ways. At the same time, like, um, the thing with Nation is, you know, the following year he's going to write probably the the best story he ever writes. Mm. Um, so there's clearly something still, the gears are still turning somewhere. It's also worth just to kind of set up some things that I'm going to say about the story, actually. Uh, at this point in the, in the season, Dix is working full-time on salvaging Monster of Peladon for whatever good that does. So Robert Holmes actually is functionally script editor for this story. He's not credited, but like pretty much every source agrees that he was, uh, which is interesting because I think it prefigures aspects of his tenure and of a couple of stories in particular. One of the things that I sort of... Sorry, I'm going to sneeze. No, I'm not. (laughs) That was... That was... That could have been a cliffhanger all in itself, really. <laughs> Just add a dinosaur. And... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a weird, slight thematic overlap between this and Monster of Peladon mm. in that they both feature the mining of resources by a kind of underclass. Mm. And I don't know if that's necessarily a... Uh, a theme that's intentionally being expanded on or if it's just the fact that because there were different script editors there wasn't the oversight to see that there was so much in common between some admittedly quite superficial plot elements but it's kind of strange that two stories that are so that have that similarity air one after the other in the same series it's Mm. it's just quite bizarre and i feel like with a bit more communication between the people involved that might not have panned out that way (laughs) Mm. I guess energy is something that kind of crops up throughout the Barry Letts and Terence Dix era Mm. Um, I've heard people, some people talk about that in quite a derogatory way you know and say oh it's energy again but I think think it's probably almost like an unconscious channelling of what is happening at the time Mm. You know, like we we were kind of saying, and we will get on to like the minor strikes are ongoing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an there's an oil embargo, which is making the miners' bargaining position much much stronger, and is resulting in power cuts across the country, and eventually will result in a three day week where you can only use you know you have to limit the amount of power you're using, and um, so I guess like energy is kind of all around. At this, yeah, that sounds like some kind of strange, like new age thing, but <laughs> <laughs> or like, um, like a redone cover of Love Is All Around. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but it is like it's it's a constant concern, and and the lack of the lack of energy in particular mm. uh, kind of means that you you can't really get away from it. Yeah, I mean that's int- uh, to be honest, I'll kind of take energy as a recurring concern as at least an interesting kind of material thing with obvious contemporary resonances i'll take that over let's do a load of hammer horror films but in (laughs) doctor who uh, as robert holmes will do in the next three i really like robert holmes's 10 year script editor but i have some big issues with it Mm. anyway um what's your general take on this episode then i 
do not like it. Um, <laughs> I I find it quite dull. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it. For me, it is symptomatic of a lot of issues I have with the Daleks in that it's just, oh, let's have an appearance by the Daleks by essentially having this cookie-cutter approach where we cut out bits from previous scripts, stitch them all together, and then, look, we've created something new and we've got Mm. an excuse to put a villain in. And it, it just feels like a cynical marketing thing and it and it feels like just... Terry Nation essentially mass-producing scripts, and it, it it fails to get to the core of what the program is about, and specifically what the Daleks are about. Mm. And that's my issue with most Dalek stories as well. Mm. If you're going to do a Dalek story, in my opinion, it has to have some purpose, and it in some way needs to address the central issues that the Daleks naturally raise, you know, fascism, for Mm. example. Obviously, Terry Nation will do this very well in the next Dalek script that he delivers because he's pushed to. But yeah, no, I don't don't really like it at all. I I just... I was reading About Time and enjoying a lot of the descriptions of this story, including the the Marine Space Corps, like you said, the, the... being made up of upper middle class people in blue jumpsuits called Jill and Richard. Breaking the mould is Galway, the big gruff Scotsman, but he turns out to be violent and treacherous. <laughs> I just feel like that sums it up. I think he also says later on about, um, they also say about how it's basically just Flash Gordon put mm. into Doctor Who. It just, yeah, it doesn't do anything for me whatsoever. And there's ridiculous stuff later on with the with the with the nefarious puzzles that they have to solve. Oh, <laughs> I hadn't even. Oh, I yeah. can't believe I didn't mention the puzzles. Do you want to mention the puzzles? I, I do because I just find it very funny how um, the role of is it Bilal? Bal yes, something I think so. like that. The yeah. little exelon that's not one of the ones that worships the city. Mm. Um, He's just there to sort of, he, like he sort. They have some good conversations with him earlier, but as soon as he's faced with basic puzzles, mm. he just reverts to being confused and asking the doctor, "But what could this mean?" All the time. Even though one of them is like a maze that you would get on the back of a cereal box. Yeah. Well, to be fair, they probably don't have cereal boxes. That's in. true. <laughs> but um, yeah, I just. It was quite funny, but it was also frustrating to watch because it's not anything that seems yeah. difficult at any point. Well, I mean, and I absolutely agree with you, And what, but what particularly interests me is the fact that, and this is the reason I raised Robert Holmes as script editor, he does the same thing in Pyramids of Mars. Mm. Episode 4 of Pyramids of Mars is basically the Doctor and Sarah going through a series of puzzles... Well, I can't. I can't quite remember. I know one of them is the. I can't remember what it's called. The towers thing where you have to like move blocks between things, and you can't put a block on top of a smaller one. Um, but they're like just basic logic puzzles. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing, interestingly, staying on pyramids of Mars, there's a bit where the Doctor talks about like he comes across the like. I think it's the carvings on the city, and it's like, ah, this is like the carvings you get in uh, temples in Peru. Mm. it's the the classic Doctor Who thing of like, ah, you're, you know this thing that people in history did. Aliens did it. Mm. Or usually, ah, you know this thing that like 
non-white people in history did that was very clever and in, yeah, and yeah. like intricate aliens really did it so it's fine but it was but it was it was all right when those aliens did that but it wasn't all right when links did his thing because they were different things yeah mm. and i think we can all agree that it was different and yes <laughs> that's and that's yeah. okay <laughs> i mentioned this in regard to pyramids of mars because that obviously takes on like the daddy of them all mm. uh, in the like aliens built the pyramids and were egyptian gods and stuff um so i feel like uh, holmes was taking notes already at this point mm. yeah the thing that stands out to me i like i slightly gestured towards this already but the thing that really stands out to me about terry nation's writing on this story is he's writing for the first doctor yeah he's basically still in early to mid 60s mode for the the first instance of this is like the the crank handle that opens the TARDIS door, and like which is something that you might have gotten in like season one or two or even three, the idea of the the TARDIS as a purely mechanical mm. ship, which is not really the way anyone has conceived of the TARDIS for quite a few years now. Uh, even the way he writes the Doctor is kind of quite paternal, quite kind of condescending at times. And while there are those elements in the Third Doctor. Um, sometimes stronger than others here the kind of the weirdly slightly detached mode that he has feels very Hartnell to me Mm. yeah there's a couple of other things Um, I'd love to see like in series 12 by the way if um, the 13th Doctor suddenly has to crank open the TARDIS doors in an emergency I kind of like the idea actually of a return to a very mechanical TARDIS but I think that that would have to be a consistent thing and not just an odd crank handle. Yeah. I think it, it should be. Redesigned. It should be one of those things that um, they don't have in cars anymore, but the th- putting new cars anymore where you mm. wind down the window. I think they should have that for like the little glass panes in the side <laughs> oh, yeah. windows. I think that's like um, it should be redesigned with the idea of like a Ford Fiesta. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> the most mechanical of all beasts. <laughs> 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 oh here's a thing actually I think uh, I have a, a theory that Terry Nation when he wrote the Daleks uh, way back in 63 and where he had the fantastic cliffhanger of Barbara being menaced by a Dalek which is this really memorable thing that like kind of echoes through the history of the show he decided right every time I write these things the cliffhanger to the first episode is going to be a Dalek appearing because it happens in the Dalek invasion of Earth. It, I can't remember if it happens offhand in um, Planet of the Daleks, but it probably does. Probably, yeah. It happens in Death to the Daleks. It even happens in Genesis of the Daleks, uh, which is like a, a weirdly... Uh, I've always felt a weirdly underpowered cliffhanger where Davros is like, look at my new machine, and a Dalek trundles in. I'm like, oh, the machines that he's making in this story called Genesis of the Daleks... Are Daleks? Who knew? Yeah, as soon as you know what a Dalek is, and Dalek is in the title of the story. Yeah, not... I mean that's one of the big weaknesses of the new series. I mean that was that was a that was a big innovation of Earthshock, wasn't it? That he didn't have of the Cybermen. Yeah, in it. I mean, and that means that Earthshock is a great episode. We'll get on to that. Yeah, <laughs> we sure will. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's it is a recurring problem with Dalek stories. The strange need to, like, have any kind of surprise around the Daleks in it. Which, 
Occasionally they get away with by doing interesting... Like, I think, for instance, the role that Davros plays in Remembrance of the Daleks is yeah. unexpected and kind of twists the what we come to have come to expect from a Dalek story in interesting ways. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, Dalek uh, probably does this more successfully than any other story, mm. as we talked about um, in our Series 1 episode at some length. Um, in- I think this kind of tension between, you know, the cliffhanger versus... The fact that they're in the title yeah. is, again, I, I feel like it goes back to the thing that I was saying before about it's almost just like like they just use like a marketing ploy, and that's what I hate is like mm. the reason why of the Daleks is in the title is so people go, oh, the Daleks are in it, mm. we'll tune mm. in, or at least that's what the producers seem to think, because that's you know that was why they were brought back in um, Day Day of the Daleks for the yeah. start of the season it's to have a good season opener and it's just like they shouldn't be deployed in order to raise viewing figures they should be deployed because you have a story in which they're suitable and mm. in which you can do something interesting with them but it's that tension again which I guess goes throughout all TV and film between its commercial interest versus artistically what you want it mm. to do Yeah, I guess what's kind of weird about well, what's notable is that there's no real reason why it has to be the Daleks in this story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it could just be another, even another group of humans that are yeah, enemies yeah. of the mm-hmm. off-brand Enterprise crew. Yeah. Um, because the story isn't really about any of the things that we associate with the Daleks. It's about them initially having to work together to try and get the resource that they need. Mm. But then there being various... A couple of double crossings. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't really use any any aspects of the sort of ideologies that we would associate with the Daleks. I mean, there's, mm. there's, there's thinking they're better than the than the humans and the Exelons, but the humans also think they're better than the Exelons. Yeah. yeah. So, like, pretty much <laughs> most alien races kind of have that. Mm. The, the kind that would appear en masse. Like, the Cybermen would have served the same purpose. Mm. Yeah. Or, as new as they are, the Sontarans or, like pretty much anything or a, a new species i guess the the only the kind of i guess the half-hearted attempt to do something different with them and to make them relevant to the story would be this whole thing where like their weapons don't have any power yeah. and so what does a dalek do when it can't exterminate but i don't think they ever really properly explore that anyway well part yeah. of the problem is that it, that's kind of fixed because they just make new weapons yeah, yeah, yeah. within the course of like yeah. an episode yeah yeah because yeah, i think when that when that was first set up, where, yeah, where they were kind of um, forced to cooperate or were going to be, mm. that was potentially an interesting idea, but mm. then it doesn't really. Yeah, they just sort of they resolve that themselves quite easily, yeah. and so then they can get back to. Mm. It's and it's it's funny because that like more than anything I think could be a kind of counterpoint. To the idea that um, that nation doesn't really do anything new with the Daleks at this point. Because, like, there's something there. There's an interesting idea yeah. there. Hmm. In the same way that I think this, this story has an interesting idea. The idea of, like, a living city is quite interesting. Hmm. Problem is, because two of the episodes have to be devoted to Daleks, it ends up being very kind of compromised. Hmm. And e- even to the point where, like... The plot ends up going in bizarre ways because, like, the Doctor spends two two episodes 
going through this very laboriously through this city puzzle by puzzle leading to the amazing episode three cliffhanger <laughs> um, which is just wonderful is that the one they're just looking at the floor they're just looking at the floor it's just a shot of the floor he's just like look out and there's a shot of the floor and the, the steam comes <laughs> oh my god tiles but yeah the doctor spends ages going through this city uh, bit by bit and then spends several minutes fiddling with stuff and then says right that's done walks out it's never clear what exactly he's done. Mm. Because the power comes back. But the power comes back when the Daleks blow up the beacon on the city. Mm. So what did the Doctor do? Was there any point to any of that? Well, I mean... He's just there for the puzzles. Yeah, yeah, and the, and the horrific interior design, which was the cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> he's there to be shocked by so we- tiles. There's something good I'll say about this episode, mm-hmm. and then I thought something bad as well. Um, I think the city's done quite well exterior-wise. Mm, yeah. I think that looks quite good. What I've just remembered, and I don't know how I forgot this, our old friend Carrie Blyton, who uh, who scored the Silurians, yes. is back. <laughs> and his music's as terrible as ever. <laughs> Carrie Blyton, the... The auteur behind the <laughs> behind the bananas in, in pajamas theme song, it must be oh, said. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, apparently, that's like his most famous thing. Apart from being Enid Blyton's nephew, that's his claim to fame. Yeah, we actually listened to the to the theme tune earlier today because I couldn't mm. remember how it went. But I think I was actually singing it slightly better than what it is. Yeah, I think like so. my version was a bit catchier and <laughs> like. <laughs> that's it's a bit a bit odd. Oh, There's God. also some weird um, foley artist choices in the sound effects. Because what is the sound that the Daleks make when they're trying to fire their guns? Oh when yeah, it doesn't work. it's like a weird kind because of popping noise, yeah, like, or like yeah. an inverted popping noise. Yeah, somehow. it's not as bad as the Silurians, the music, but no, and 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 also like, I think it 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 does. There's a point where it works. So you know that the ridiculous. Thing where it's like, you know, like that. It's not a very good impression, but but that's that's the kind of music that is going mm. on when the darks are around, and that works quite well when their weapons don't work. Mm, yeah, it doesn't work well when they continue to use it when they're supposed to be threatening. It's a weird oh, use bad. of the Daleks as well because, like, we talk about the particularly with regard to the new series, the kind of. The way in which they're made progressively less threatening because they keep showing up in weird ways. In this story, we've got Daleks, like, surrounded and, in at least one case, destroyed by, like, a kind of... I don't want to use the word primitive, but, like... um, Someone with a bow and arrow. Yeah, and they've got, like, (laughs) spears and stuff. And they somehow destroy a Dalek. And, like, for, like, villains that, like caught the public attention because they were so alien and so terrifying it's kind of how the mighty have fallen in 10 years yeah and it's kind of like now we know that genesis of the daleks is around the corner we know that this revitalization of what they are and where they come from is is coming up but at the time it must have looked like like they were really played out yeah i actually thought that there was going to be something with the bow and arrow usage coming back because 
when they first find off brand enterprise quote um they one of they're using bows and arrows mm, yeah and then the exelons are using bows and arrows so i thought there was going to be some kind of thing sort of 17 is that what leaders 17 yeah, yeah 17 esque twist where it was like the exelons were people who'd come earlier to seek the ah. rare substance I can't remember what it's called. Yeah. And then had had to just adjust to life there because they couldn't leave for whatever reason. Yeah. But then that didn't happen. But I thought that was where it was going. And then it was kind of more of a surprise that it didn't really because bow and arrow is such an unusual weapon for, well, for the people who've arrived on a spaceship to be using anyway. Yeah. I guess maybe they made it or they got it from the Exelons. Mm. But I thought it was going to be the other way around. Yeah, that would have been far more interesting than anything that's actually in this story. <laughs> it would have been nice if the bow and arrow had been, like, plot significant as well. Because then we would have had a theme running. Because a bow and arrow is used to kill Lynx in uh, Time ah, yes. By Boba Fett. <laughs> yes. By yes. Jeremy Bullock, who went on to play at least, like, the body of Boba Fett. I don't think he even did the voice even before they were remastered. Yeah, I think... That's that's really all I have to say about this story anyway. It does is there anything that we haven't touched on? I guess just that I think that if it were better or if it would be if it were worse, it would be more interesting to talk about. Yeah. But it's because just... it's kind of as it is, mm. it's not extremely inspiring either way. Yeah. prolong the agony in that case i think that brings us to the end of our first part uh, of our season 11 episode uh join us next time where we will have i'm sure tons of fun going through monster of Peladon, and then uh jacob just sort of collapsed inwards a little bit at the mere mention of monster <laughs> of Peladon. Uh, we'll go through that and we'll go through planet of spiders planet of the spiders excuse me not just any spiders the definite article um, oh. uh, I just did. I was trying to do Tom Baker and I did an impression of you by accident <laughs> um, yes we'll go through Monster Pell and we'll go through Planet of the Spiders and then we'll as always be ranking uh, the episodes in order of how much we like them so until then I've been Kieran. I've been Bethan and I've been Jacob thank you very much bye